The following recording is a presentation of the Brian Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome you to visit our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. Good morning, everyone, and welcome to our service of Berean Baptist Church. All right, let's take our Bibles now, if you would please, and we open them to Luke chapter 12. And I begin this morning by returning to an important quote that I gave you last week that summarizes the theme of our text verses here in Luke chapter 12. One author said, at the heart of it all, anxiety is rooted in trying to care by myself for that which only God can do. Worry reigns in our lives when we think or act as if something is ultimately up to me rather than up to God. It actually has to do with the desire to control things. Now listen again to that overarching assessment of the problem. Worry reigns in our lives when we think or act as if something is ultimately up to me rather than up to God. Our text verses are Luke 12, verses 22 through 34. And he said unto his disciples, Therefore I say unto you, Take no thought for your life what ye shall eat, neither for the body what ye shall put on. The life is more than meat, and the body more than raiment. Consider the ravens, for they neither sow nor reap, which neither have storehouse nor barn, and God feedeth them. How much more are ye better than the fowls? And which of you, with taking thought, can add to his stature one cubit? If ye then be not able to do that thing which is least, why take ye thought for the rest? Consider the lilies, how they grow. They toil not, they spin not. And yet I say unto you that Solomon... And all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. If then God so clothed the grass which is today in the field, and tomorrow is cast in the oven, how much more will he clothe you, O ye of little faith? And seek not, seek not ye what ye shall eat or what ye shall drink, neither be of doubtful mind. For all these things do the nations of the world seek after. And your Father knoweth ye have need of these things." But rather seek ye the kingdom of God, and all these things shall be added unto you. Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell that ye have, and give alms. Provide yourselves bags which wax not old, a treasure in the heavens that faileth not, where no thief approacheth, neither moth corrupteth. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also." Before we continue with the exposition of this text, I want you to look up the page to verses 13 through 15. It says, And one of the company said unto him, Master, speak to my brother that he divide the inheritance with me. And he said unto him, Man, who made me a judge or divider over you? And he said unto them, Take heed and beware of covetousness, for a man's life consisteth not in the abundance of things which he possesseth. Now, beginning there in the 13th verse, Jesus was asked to make a a judgment in a case between two brothers. These brothers were in a dispute over their inheritance, and we don't have any background information on these two men. 
We don't know the circumstances of how their inheritance came into dispute. We don't know how hot and heavy their argument may have become. We don't know if their disagreement had nearly come to blows. And we don't know if this dispute was in danger of permanently damaging the relationship of these two men. All we know is that one brother was very much dissatisfied that the other had received an inheritance and he was unwilling to share it with him. Now, most of you are familiar with the Old Testament law called the law of primogenitor. Uh, This meant that the right of the inheritance belonged exclusively to the eldest son. And we can see that, that law at work in the story of Jacob and Esau and the supplanting of the birthright that was orchestrated by Rebecca, who was the mother of these two boys. She favored the younger brother Jacob, and so she helped him to steal his brother Esau's birthright. Uh, Jacob surreptitiously received from Isaac the inheritance that belonged to his elder brother. That's a long story that I hope that you are familiar with. Uh, And it ends with uh, Jacob fleeing from Esau who threatened his life. Now the Old Testament does have much to say about inheritances and laws that that governed who should receive uh, the ownership of the father's property when he died. Uh, There were laws that governed the birthright if a man died without sons. Could his property pass on to his daughters? What should happen to a person who dies who doesn't have any children? What happens to the land and possessions then? There were laws about the land and how land could be reclaimed and how birthrights could be restored. We see that in the book of Ruth and the story of Naomi when she returned from Moab after her husband and her two sons had died. There were laws about the redemption of property and continuation of possessions. Now, we don't know, though, as I said, the circumstances of this New Testament dispute, but we can imagine that the one who is speaking to Jesus was the younger son, and that he may have been mixed up in one of these uncertain situations about who was to receive the portion of the father's inheritance. Evidently, he felt that he had been cheated, and he had not received what he thought was rightfully his. Now, considering that Jesus was a teacher of truth and justice, that he was wise and discerning, this young man came to Jesus and asked him to render a judgment, to give an opinion uh, in seeking fairness in the outcome of how this inheritance was to be shared. A few years ago, I, I was asked to preside over the division of an estate. I was bound by the law to uphold a very unhappy outcome. There was one person in the family that received all of the inheritance, which was quite a large sum, and the other person, sibling in the family, received next to nothing. And the, the one who received it refused to share it with the other. I thought that charity would have been the proper thing to do. That would be good for the welfare of the family, even though... Uh, The will said such and such. Uh, This other person could have shared that. There was enough money that that it could have been done. So he decided not to do that. He wouldn't do it. And all that I could do was to uphold what the, the will said, the official will said, and what the estate trust said must be done. But it was a very unhappy outcome. So I understand the disgruntled nature of this young man in Luke chapter 12. 
And if his scenario is like the one that I just described, then perhaps we could have some sympathy for him, why he approached Jesus with this problem and why he was so upset. And yet, as we, as we read the story, it must be that Jesus perceived that the problem was much deeper. That this man must have felt that his life was ruined because he wouldn't receive the part of the inheritance that he believed belonged to him. And it very well could be that it was a large sum of money and perhaps it would be enough to, as we would say, change his life forever. But he wasn't going to receive that part of the inheritance. And what Jesus saw in this man was that he put his stock and his confidence in his possessions and didn't take thought for the most important, which was life itself. And thus he proceeds the teaching, uh, proceeds with the teaching of verse number 15, that our lives do not consist in the abundance of our wealth. And so Jesus intended to point him to the major concern, which is, what will happen to your soul in eternity? From there he goes on in our text verses to say that God will always take care of our lives when we put stock in his kingdom rather than in our little fiefdoms. So Jesus taught important theological concepts. And, and as he taught, he, he, he could approach the most astute, the most learned of people of the academic world. And yet he was very practical so that anyone with any type of education could understand and find hope and comfort in his words. When he taught, he confounded the scribes and Pharisees, the doctors of the law. He made them think about their logic and what their positions were. And as they spoke with Jesus, they found no answer for his arguments. But then at the same time, he put his teachings down on the bottom shelf where the common man could reach them if they were careful to have the Spirit help them to understand. Now, as I mentioned last time, these verses parallel Jesus' greatest sermon in Matthew, the Sermon on the Mount. He preached that sermon on a hillside in Galilee. Pharisees and the doctors of the law were always shadowing him. They were always waiting for him to make a mistake and find cause against him. And we find here in, in Luke, in the end of the 11th chapter, that this, we see this playing out as it says there in verse number 53, And as he said these things unto them, the scribes and the Pharisees began to urge him vehemently and to to provoke him to speak of many things, laying wait for him and seeking to catch something out of his mouth that they might accuse him. So we can imagine that what Jesus said in this response to this man's questions, if it went against the instructions of Moses, then they would accuse him. But Jesus was too wise to fall into such a trap. Those in attendance, as Jesus preached, mostly they were Galileans. They were raised far from the theological study of the temple, the center of academic learning of the Jewish religion. And so Jesus had to warn them about these Jews who often came up from Jerusalem to accuse him. And he said, watch out for their hypocrisy. Watch out for these smug religious leaders. So the people that he taught largely in Galilee were not the elite of Jewish society. And so this sermon was put down on their level with simple yet profound illustrations that affected 
their everyday lives. Well, Jesus' ability uh, to speak about everyday concerns is most vividly displayed in the illustrations of this discourse. When he turned to his disciples to explain, I'm sure, most likely, that the crowd was within earshot of the answer to these questions. Here he speaks about a condition that is common to them and it's common to every person in this room. And it has been for the 50 centuries since Jesus spoke these, or 50 generations, I should say, since Jesus spoke these words. And the question is, how will we live? How will we take care of ourselves? What are we to do if the economy fails? And there are a lot of people now in our age that are worried about that very thing. Are the stock market is on the longest plunge that it has, I think they said, since, uh, been in since 2008. So people are worried. How, how are we going to live? Especially retired people thinking about how are we going to live if the stock market keeps falling? And the great comfort that we draw from these scriptures is that we need not worry about any of it. That God already has it handled. And we are to simply trust him and be sure that we will have everything we need. Now let's notice how Jesus turns this question about an inheritance into a study about the common condition of worry. We are mostly a society of anxious people. As I said, we're, we're no different than the 50 generations that lived before us since Jesus was here. There is a level of anxiety, a level of anxiety over material goods that is relative to the amount you have, whether we're speaking of the richest of the rich or the poorest of the poor. Most who heard Jesus speak were poor, and tomorrow's food and tomorrow's clothing, tomorrow's shelter was a real concern for them. There were no government programs to help the poor. There were no funds for the poor or charitable organizations that regularly took care of such things. And so if there was a drought, if there was a flood, if there was a fire, living under a heavily taxing foreign government, a plague of locusts, a plague of disease, if any of those things happened, they had no answer for it. They had nothing they could do about it. So if anyone had a legitimate concern over these problems, it was these people. And so we would think that if we had the answer to all of those questions, then worry would be eliminated. What if we do have programs for the poor? What if we are able to channel water in an aqueduct for hundreds of miles to water crops when there is no rain? What if we do have tax relief from the government? What if we do get the rebates and all the things the government promises us? What reason do we have to worry? And yet having all these things, all those things, does not relieve the anxiety. Because we're mostly concerned about maintaining a certain lifestyle. Having what we need is not enough for us. Having what we want is the most important. And so we concern ourselves with how much we can hold on to and how do we maintain a lifestyle that we think will make us happy. And yet the rich never get rid of their anxieties. Certainly the poor fare no better. Jesus understands the human heart. He knows exactly where we're coming from. And so he must shift our thinking to where our true concerns must lie. 
Now, before we, we start with this, with this subject, I, I want to make it very clear that this passage holds no hope for anyone who's not a Christian. I'm not talking about secular lifestyles here. God doesn't make promises to Buddhists and Muslims and Hindus or anyone of false Christianity beyond, beyond the common grace that he provides for all. So if I could put it this way, the, the religionist who does not have Jehovah God as his father and does not have his faith in Jesus Christ to the saving of his soul fares no better in God's grace than does a bird or a plant in the field. And you may not like that, but the previous parts of this sermon have already addressed where you must be spiritually to expect God's provision. You must have a relationship with him. You must know what it means to have a pure heart and to be cleansed from sin in the blood of Jesus Christ. You cannot have your thinking changed along the lines that are outlined here in this passage unless you are right with God. So don't think that you can apply anything here in these verses if you are not a born-again Christian. And I'm not trying to be harsh about that. Um, I am not. Neither is God. Because the best that could ever happen to any person is to know Christ. God wants you to have peace and joy in your life. He wants you to have an eternal home in the heavens. And so thus he does not teach in the parable that precedes this passage anything other than that your soul will be required of you and what happens to all those possessions that you have then. And this is truly the whole point, that God is not interested in making you satisfied in a life that is outside of him. To do so would defeat the purpose that the purpose of your life is to glorify God, that your life belongs to him. And because of this, there is no Christian that should expect that the reason that God exists is to make us comfortable with the world when everything that Christ and the apostles said point in an entirely different direction. He said, you'll have tribulation as a Christian. You'll have persecution as a Christian. You'll have troubles as a Christian. Your life is not about your life. Your life is about Christ's life. And your life consists of, as a believer in Jesus Christ, your citizenship in heaven, which you already have as a believer. So your life is about God's kingdom. It's not about you and your personal little kingdom and all those things you have accumulated to yourself. So let's go on and see how Jesus can solve this problem of worry. In, in the first part of the message, we covered two areas of life that are important. First of these was the preparation of life. Jesus said, take no thought. And that's an expression that simply means don't worry. And as I said last week, before we uh, look at what Jesus meant by these sayings, we might be wise to look at what he didn't mean. Did Jesus teach that we can just throw caution to the wind, be carefree and unconcerned about anything? Could we quit our jobs and uh, not be concerned about feeding ourselves and taking care of our children, buying them clothes? No, the Bible teaches that we are to work. We are to be industrious. The scripture says that if a man will not work, then neither should he eat. So you do have a responsibility to provide for a family. And he says, if you don't, you are worse than a heathen. 
God won't put food on your table. He won't provide a place for you to live if you just sit around and do nothing. Neither does he say that you shouldn't save, that you shouldn't invest. Those are godly principles. Preparation for life is important. He doesn't teach that you shouldn't prepare, but he does teach that you shouldn't be caught up in all those preparations so they consume your entire life. Then he continues by speaking of, secondly, the composition of life. Verse 22 says, Therefore I say unto you, take no thought for your life, what ye shall eat, neither for the body, what ye shall, ye shall put on. Is the purpose of God calling you for his own, is that purpose wrapped up in material things of this world? Is this what your body was made for? Was it made to eat? Was your body made as a place to hang clothes? Did God put you into his eternal purpose and did he send Christ to die for you just to let you starve to death or freeze to death? I mean, we would have to think, surely your life is more important to God than that. If we're lost within ourselves, thinking that the end of God's plans and purposes is that we should have stuff and that we should be happy with our stuff and that we would skip and hop and skate easily through life and consume God's provisions upon ourselves, if those things are an end to themselves, then I would tell you, yes, you need to be very concerned that you have the finest home that you can get your hands on. You should be very concerned about a fancy car driving the best that you can get. You should be very concerned about whether you are wearing designer jeans. This comment appeared in the New York Times on Monday. I didn't hear any boos. <laughs> oh, there we go. Uh, this comment appeared in the New York Times last Monday. This story is about uh, a, a young people, a young person who, who uh, or it was in general about uh, young people who have stopped uh, stocking away, putting away money into savings accounts. And the comment, this comment stands out as a commentary on life without Christ. This person said, I'm not going to deprive myself some of the comforts of life now for the future that feels like it could be ripped away from me at any moment. Now the popular religion today says that the things of this life are an end to themselves, that there is no certain future. And even Christianity buys into that by telling you that your material stuff proves that you are a child of God. If you've got it, then you must be blessed. And that is a pharisaical position that is loudly denounced in the scriptures. I mean, the disciples thought, they asked, well, if the rich can't be saved, then who can be? I mean, that's proof, isn't it? They are God's children if they're rich. But no true child of God should think that way because God did not put you here for you. He put you here for him. He sent Christ to redeem you from sin so that you might be a glorious trophy of his marvelous grace. So God is not going to let you go. His design for your life was to make you an object to glorify him. And his design was most certainly to give you a glorious future where you will continue to glorify him. So you can have confidence that as a believer in Jesus Christ, your future will never be ripped away from you. You have a certain future in God's kingdom. 
Well, Jesus beautifully illustrates this by birds and flowers. Birds don't need to be concerned about their meals because God graciously provides for them. The flowers don't need to work to find soil to grow in. They don't have to move to another place to find rain because God provides all the nutrients in the soil and the rain when it's needed. So the argument goes that if God will provide for these lesser, insignificant parts of his creation, then how much more is he concerned about the crowning achievement of his creation, which is man? He created humans with reason and aptitude and ability to praise and glorify him. So if birds and flowers, the grass, if they don't worry, why in heaven's name should we? When our focus is right, and we, when we consider God's eternal purposes for his creation, there is no rational reason to assume that any one of his children will not ultimately fulfill the purpose for which God put them here on this earth. So if you are content with God's purpose, you will be content with his provision. You will accept where God puts you in life. Now, I want to go on and look a little bit more into the arguments that Jesus gives for why you shouldn't worry. The third observation we would make from the passage is the exhortation about life. The exhortation is the appeal that Jesus makes concerning the difference between his general providence for his creatures and the specific care, specific care that he has for those who are in relationship with him. And so he exhorts his listeners to think very carefully about their relationship with God. Now, this special relationship is seen in verse number 24. He says, consider the ravens. Now, I might comment that the raven to Israel was an unclean bird. The raven is a scavenger. And so he's telling us, I think Jesus purposely chose the raven. Say, he even takes care of that and the raven, the, the unclean bird. Consider the ravens, for they neither sow nor reap, which neither have storehouse nor barn, and God feedeth them. How much more are you better than the fowls? Now, do you see the expression of relationship in this verse? By faith in Jesus Christ, we enter a relationship with God that is different and far above only this, that God is our creator. See, when we trust Christ, we become a part of the family of God. So that just as, as God is Christ's Father, God is our Father. We are in Christ, and so God is also our Father. The argument that Jesus makes in verse 24 is if God takes care of the creature, a bird, an unclean bird, how much more will he take care of his child? One who is in relationship with him as a father. Birds don't know God as father. Animals don't have a special relationship with God except they are his creatures. Now I thought this was quite interesting that, uh, and amusing. Alistair Begg in one of his sermons said, the next time that you fill out an employment application and they ask you about your qualifications, put on the form that you are more valuable than birds. And he said, you're sure to get a question, what do you mean? You're more valuable than birds. And he said, the interest in such a creatively strange statement 
might just put you over the top and get you the job. So you remember that. I am more valuable than birds. Well, it's not a question here, though, of whether dogs and cats and birds and so forth go to heaven. God cares for all of his creatures. I mean, but you, you can be sure there is a pecking order. Uh, birds are above dogs. Dogs are above cats. And people are above them all. Uh, this, this is common grace that he has for all of his creatures and for man. Um, but there is a special care that he has for those who can call him their father. Paul put it this way in 1 Timothy 4 verse 10. For therefore we both labor and suffer reproach because we trust in the living God who is the savior of all men, especially of those that believe. Savior of all men is common grace. Especially of those that believe is redeeming grace. There's a difference. There's a relationship that one has that the other does not have. I think most of the men in our church, I know you, of course, that that you're fathers. Have you ever had any one of your children at any time come to you and say, Dad, I'm really concerned. I'm really worried about, about what we're having for supper. Are we going to be able to eat? I really like to sleep in my bed, Dad, but I'm not sure that my bed will be there tomorrow. I'm really concerned about this. Well, your kids don't make those statements. When they were growing up, they weren't worried about those things. They know Dad's there. They know Dad will take care of them. So they've never realistically worried about a meal. Now, my grandkids are always hungry, uh, and they know that they're going to get something, and they're not worried that they're not going to get something, even though they look like and act like they're going to die. But they, but they get what they need. Uh, so they don't worry about their clothes. They don't worry about the house they live in. That's not their concern. They have a father that loves them and provides for their needs. Now we think about God. How much bigger and more powerful and resourceful is God? If an earthly father cares for his children, then how much more will the heavenly father care for you? And this inclusion of God in verse number 24 is not accidental. And the inclusion of Father in the same verse or the like verse in Matthew chapter 6.26 that uh, parallels it is not incidental. The poorest children have as much hope in their Father as the richest children do. They, They don't worry because it's not their concern. Now let me show you how Jesus drives this point home even more. He says, your heavenly father takes care of birds. And then he goes on in verse number 25 to frame another argument, another great exhortation to consider exactly why you must leave everything in God's hands. In verse 25, and which of you taking thought can add to his stature one cubit? Now, I'll be honest, There's much confusion about what that means. What does he mean adding a cubit to your stature? He says a little bit differently in in Matthew, which is maybe a little bit more confusing to us. Uh, What does he mean by that? What what could he possibly mean by adding a cubit to your stature? Uh, Some say he's talking about um, the length of life. And that might be what he's talking about. And that's what more tends to in the Matthew passage. But a cubit is a, is a Bible measurement usually thought to be about 18 inches. Uh, does Jesus mean which of you can add 18 inches to your height? 
Well, that'd be kind of silly, wouldn't it? Add 18 inches to your height. Now, you, you know, I'm about six feet, two inches. So if I add 18 inches to my height, that would make me seven feet, eight inches tall. Why would I want to be seven feet, eight inches tall? Maybe if I was 40 years younger, I'd make millions of dollars in the NBA. But I don't want to be seven feet, eight inches tall. Nobody wants to be that tall. I don't even like people that are over six feet tall. So Jesus is not speaking about height here. He obviously then must be speaking about the span of your life. How many of you, by constantly worrying, can add any time to your life? Now, there's a great story in the Old Testament that we can use to illustrate this. I think the best illustrations are those that we can pull right out of the Bible. So I'd like you to turn in your Bible to the Old Testament to Isaiah chapter 38. This is the story about Hezekiah. Uh, he was one of the few kings of Judah that was a good king. And in this, this story, Hezekiah was sick and about to die. And God sent Isaiah, the prophet, to tell him to get his house in order because the time of his life was growing short. Isaiah 38, beginning in verse number 1. In those days was Hezekiah sick unto death. And Isaiah, the prophet, the son of Amos, came unto him and said unto him, Thus saith the Lord, Set thine house in order, for thou shalt die and not live. Then Hezekiah turned his face toward the wall and prayed unto the Lord and said, Remember now, O Lord, I beseech thee how I have walked before thee in truth with a perfect heart and have done that which is good in thy sight. And Hezekiah wept sore. Then came the word of the Lord to Isaiah, saying, Go and say to Hezekiah, Thus saith the Lord, the God of, thy, of David thy father, I have heard thy prayer, I have seen thy tears. Behold, I will add unto thy days fifteen years. And I will deliver thee and this city out of the hand of the king of Assyria, and I will defend this city. And this shall be a sign unto thee from the Lord, that the Lord will do this thing that he hath spoken." Behold, I will bring again the shadow of degrees, which has gone down in the sundial of Ahaz, ten degrees backward. So the sun returned ten degrees, by which degrees it was gone down. You want to know how great God's power is? Verse 8 says, he caused the sun to go backward by ten degrees. Now, there is nobody who really knows how much time that involves. If we were talking about how we do degrees today, that would be about 40 minutes. But the sundial of Ahaz, we would not know what the markings on it were. So how could we? We really don't know. But let's say God sent the sun backwards uh, 40 minutes. So what if you're watching this thing take place and you see, you know, the sun rises in the east, it heads, progresses towards the west. And so you're looking at the sundial and all of a sudden you see... The shadow going backwards. The sun is backing up and going towards the east instead of headed towards the west. Now, that's the kind of power that God has. This was Hezekiah's sign that God's word was true. But I think more importantly to him was that God was able to add 15 years to his life. Hezekiah had no ability to lengthen his life no matter how much worrying he would do. Now, this is what Jesus is saying in Luke 12. You will not add years to your life by worrying. You can't. And isn't that what these people were thinking? How can I keep my life going? How can I stay on this earth longer? It's the same thing that we worry about. You're worried that you're going to die. And the next meal that you eat represents 
your attempt to stay alive. Someone said, the great anxiety underlying all anxiety is the fear of death. Ah, but your life is in God's hands. If you worry where you'll get your next meal, will worry provide it? Will you add to your life now? Will you add to it in any way when your life is in God's hands? That's the encouraging exhortation about life. God is the one who provides for it. Now, last week I read this interesting comment uh, in, in another in an article about identifying who we are, and this is very important considering the, the debate about how many genders there are and confusion about gender identity. But as I was reading that, I thought, well, you know, I think I can find an application to our study today. Now, listen to this and apply it to the debate about gender, and that's what the article was originally about, and to our contention that God determines the course of our lives. So this is what it says. Your true identity is who God says you are. You will never discover who you are by looking inside yourself or listening to what others say. The Lord has the first word because he made you. He gets the daily word because you live before his face. He gets the last word because he will administer your final comprehensive life review. Now I want you to notice something, how we can compare this to Hezekiah's life and apply what we just read. God will administer your final comprehensive life review. Did you notice the basis of Hezekiah's appeal when he prayed? Did he say to the Lord, you know, Lord, I have been a pretty wicked fellow. I've been worshiping idols when you told us not to. I haven't been paying attention to your word at all. I don't give a flip about your word. Now, add some more time to my life. Well, if his life was characterized that way, he couldn't expect anything from God. So listen to what he does say. Remember, remember, O Lord, remember now, O Lord, I beseech thee how I have walked before thee in truth with a perfect heart and have done that which is good in thy sight. If you want a long life, don't worry about it. Put into practice what God says guarantees length of days. Now, you'll find this in the Proverbs. Proverbs chapter 3 says, My son, forget not my law, but let thine heart keep my commandments. For length of days and long life and peace shall they add to thee. In the ninth chapter of Proverbs, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the holy is understanding. For by me thy days shall be multiplied, and the years of thy life shall be increased. Now, what Hezekiah did when he prayed was to grab hold of this promise, and he brought it before God, and he said, Remember your promise, O Lord. Consider how I've walked in your ways. So, the point is, worry is not the answer to anything. If you go down to verse 29 of our text, there we read, And seek not ye what ye shall eat or what ye shall drink, neither be ye of doubtful mind, for all these things do the nations of the world seek after. And your Father knoweth that ye have need of these things, but rather seek ye the kingdom of God. Seek ye the kingdom of God, and all these things shall be added unto you. If the focus is God instead of your goods... God will give you what you need. Now, the world focuses on the goods and not God. And if you still insist on worrying, well, don't worry about your food and clothes. 
worry about the righteousness of your life. Have you pursued God with a perfect heart? Where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Well, fourthly, we go on. Number four is the expectation of life. Notice verse 28. If then God so clothed the grass, which is today in the field, and tomorrow is cast into the oven, how much more will he clothe you, O ye of little faith? Now, Jesus makes his arguments about worry. Now he brings in another important factor. He says that your worry is tied to your faith. He says that people that worry about food and clothes are people of little faith. And, of course, that's not just food and clothes. It's about anything in your life. You worry about it, you're a person of little faith. So what does he mean by this? What is little faith, and how do you measure faith? How much faith is really necessary? Well, these people had faith, but not much faith. How does that relate to a Christian? Let me say first that a Christian does have faith. You can't be a Christian unless you have faith. Paul said in Galatians 3.26, For ye all the children of God, how? By faith. So every Christian has faith. Jesus said in John 5, 24, Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that heareth my word, and what? Believeth on him that sent me, hath everlasting life, and shall not come into condemnation, but is passed from death unto life. Faith is the instrument by which we receive the grace of God in salvation. If you have this much faith to believe that you are a sinner on the way to hell, and that Jesus died to pay for your sins, and you trust him alone to save you, you have enough faith to be saved. I often say you don't need to be a theologian to be saved. I think sometimes that we think that knowing and understanding the deep things of God corresponds to greater faith. That's not always true. But if it is true, then you can be saved without having that that measure of faith. Now, how then do some have little faith, and what is the measurement of faith? Well, I think that, that Jesus is teaching, in this sense, that saving faith is a minimal faith. And don't misunderstand, I'm not saying that's an insignificant faith. I'm just, I've just described to you what the minimum faith is that you must have to be saved, and here is where a successful, contented Christian, in his life, that faith can start to break down. Christians stay at the minimum faith level where they have trusted Christ for the eternal salvation of their souls, but they're hesitant about trusting him for the temporal salvation of their lives. And the reason for this is because the eternal thing is far off. We can't see that yet. We haven't experienced that yet. That's that's far off from us. And here we are. We're in the right now. We're living today. And so we've got the faith for eternal life, but where's that faith to live today? Where's that faith to keep following God today? Now think about the logic that, that Jesus uses with his lesser to greater argument and vice versa. If Christ is able to take care of the eternal salvation of your soul, do you think that he'll withdraw from the temporal salvation of this life? Jesus is concerned to take people from minimum faith that it takes to be saved to an ever-increasing faith of putting every detail of life into God's hands. When we speak of growing Christians, this is what it means to move from a baby stage of Christianity 
to adulthood. This is exactly what it's talking about. Uh, It's an issue of greater proportions of faith that will trust God implicitly in all situations. So the teaching here is that worry is a function of faith. The lesser your faith, the more you will worry. The greater your faith, the less you will worry. Worry and doubt are just another way of saying you lack faith. Now, it's really odd that we get mixed up about this. This expectation of our lives is that if God takes care of the eternal soul, then there couldn't be anything within the purview of your everyday life that he's not also concerned about. That's how we have to look at our faith. A few years ago, I spoke to a member that was going out the door. This lady said to me, I was a member of another church and, and we were told, invite God into your situation. Now, I have news for you. For God's people, God's already in your situation. He's got both feet in the middle of it. He's already there. And what you need to do is let loose, let go of the control that you think you have, which you don't have, and acknowledge God is already there. Now, the expectation of our life in Christ is that faith is not supposed to be confined to the initial moment when we put our faith in Christ. We don't confine our faith to that original putting that faith in Christ and receiving him as Savior. Don't stop there. Expect that the God who takes care of the eternal welfare of your soul wants you to stop doubting that he can control anything that you're going through. Now, truth be told, God puts you in circumstances to test your faith and to increase your faith. And when you doubt him, you fail the test. Now, let me give you three identifiers of little faith that lead to worry. We'll finish with these and then we'll come back uh, next week to tie everything up into a neat little package with the final verses of the chapter. See if these statements identify your faith. Little faith. What is little faith? Well, little faith is failure to master circumstances. The picture could not be clearer that life to these people was a bully. Life was pushing them around. They were victims of their circumstances. They lived to get food and shelter. This was their pursuit, no doubt. And much of the reason that they followed Jesus around was for this, because sometimes he would feed them. Now, we learn this from Jesus' own words. He said, you seek me not because you saw the miracles, but because you did eat of the loaves and were filled. It was sort of like a Pavlovian response. When Jesus opened his mouth and began to speak, they started to salivate. When Jesus speaks, there's food coming. And so they start to salivate. They, they, they couldn't see beyond anything that was physical, and that just left them powerless. Their faith did not extend to the place that they could say with Peter, the trial of faith is more precious than gold, or that tribulation works a more enduring faith. If the problem is food, great faith will solve that problem. Worry won't. Not once did worry put food on the table. But I want you to listen to what Hebrews says about people who have faith. Hebrews 11, starting in verse 33, who through faith subdued kingdoms, wrought righteousness, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the violence of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, out of weakness were made strong, waxed valiant in fight, turned to flight the armies of the aliens, women 
receive their dead raised to life again. And you were worried about food? You think these people that it speaks of here were worried about what's going to happen tomorrow? I don't think so. Faith caused these Christians to take charge of their circumstances, not to bend and break beneath them. Little faith is when you're always pushed around, mastered by circumstances. Secondly, is failure to think. Little faith is failure to think. Jesus says, use your powers of observation. Use your noggins. Look at birds. Look at birds. You, you, you see how they're taken care of? Look at the flowers in the field. You see what's going on with them. Use your heads a little bit, people. I like the way that Martin Lloyd-Jones put this. He talks about those who are constantly thinking the wrong way. And he says, if you lie awake at night for hours, I can tell you what you have been doing. You have been going around in circles. Now, you remember last week, Mina and the bull? Uh, Lloyd-Jones didn't use Mina and the bull. I did. That was my example, not his. He says, you just go over the same old miserable details about some person or something. That is not thought. That is the absence of thought, of failure to think. That means something else is controlling your thought and governing it, and it leads to that wretched, unhappy state called worry. Oh, that doesn't apply to any of us, does it? No, not for a minute. Losing sleep? Losing sleep over worry? What does that do? Adds one more worry. When am I going to get enough sleep? Little faith will keep you awake at night. Great faith never will. Great faith lets you sleep like a baby. Remember the psalm that David wrote when Absalom, his son, was trying to take over his throne and trying to kill him. His life was in danger. David said, many there are that rise up against me. And do you know what David said? What he did? He, and what he said? He said, well, I stayed awake all night worrying about that. I just worried myself to death. I didn't know what to do. That's not what he said. This is what he said in Psalm 3. I cried unto the Lord with my voice, and he heard me out of his holy hill, Selah. I laid me down and slept. I awaked, and the Lord sustained me. I laid me down and slept. Great faith will not keep you awake at night. Number three is failure to believe the Bible. Little faith is failure to believe the Bible. Peter says that we have been given exceeding great and precious promises. Start flipping through the pages of the Bible. See how many times God let his people down. When did God ever fail to deliver them when they cried to him? I mean, from the widow who fed Elijah because she believed the word of God to that smelly old prophet Jonah in the belly of the whale? They got what they needed. When they prayed, God was there to fulfill every word of what he said he would do. Now, I'd like to paraphrase Mike Nelson at this point, who wrote, I'm paraphrasing, though Israel would fail a thousand times, God would keep his promises to them. You remember this song, My Redeemer is faithful and true. Every word he has said he will do. Every morning his mercies are new. My Redeemer is faithful and true. If you have doubts, if things bother you, pick up the Bible and read God's promises. And then look back on your life to see when was the time that God failed you. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. 
I think that might be the best promise written in the Bible. When he says, I'm the Lord, I change not. He is immutable. He, he, does, he never changes. And his, his promises are immutable because that's God's character. And you know the best part of this? I can't leave this out. The Bible also says that your names were written down before the foundation of the world. God started this world with you in mind. There was an eternal purpose for you. God determined it. God put it into action. And God has every intention of bringing it to pass. Why are you worried? If God has his purpose, what will you do that God can't do? How will you, how will you alter his purpose? So don't be a person of little faith. Have faith in God. William Carey, that great Baptist missionary to India, said in 1792, expect great things from God, attempt great things for God. If you're a person of doubt and worry, then you're a person with little expectation, and I doubt that you'll ever do anything for God. Jesus wants to change that. Trust him for your salvation and trust him for your life. God already has it handled. No guilt in life, no fear in death. This is the power of Christ in me. From life's first cry to final breath, Jesus commands my destiny. No power of hell, no scheme of man can ever pluck me from his hand. Till he returns or calls me home, here in the power of Christ I'll stand. To God be the glory, great things he has done. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the time that we've spent together today in your word. Make us a people with greater faith. Help us to depend on you. Lord, we know it's not in, in us to be able to do that. You save us by your mighty power. You sustain us by your mighty power. And we know that every day that we live, every day that we attempt to live, this Christian life must be done in the power of your Holy Spirit. Help us, Lord, that when we pray, that we would ask for that power of the Holy Spirit within us. Fill us with your Spirit, Lord, so that we never, never doubt or worry anything that you say. Never worry about it. But Lord, that we trust you, that you always do what you say you will do. We can't find a single time in any of our lives where you've let us down. If that's the track record, then we know that's what the future is as well. So, Lord, thank you for all that you do for us. Bless your people today. We pray for anyone here who doesn't yet know you as Savior. Uh, We know they can't apply the principles that we talked about here until they come to faith in you. And then you supply the power to live the Christian life, to change our minds, to line it up with what Jesus says here in the Scriptures. Lord, speak to hearts today, saved or lost, that we might trust in you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Brian Baptist Church of Roner Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Brian Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Roner Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us online at www.bebaptist.org.